You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. 2 Samuel chapter 1, we'll look at verses 11 and 12 and then jump down to verse number 17. Verse number 11. And David took hold of his clothes and rent them. And likewise, all the men that were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until even for Saul and for Jonathan, his son, and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel, because they were fallen by the sword. Verse 17. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and over Jonathan, his son. Also, he bade them teach the children of Judah the use of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jasser. The beauty of Israel is slain upon the high places. How are the mighty fallen? Tell it not in Gath. Publish it not in the streets of Ascalon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you, nor fields of offerings. For there the shield of the mighty is vilely cast away, the shield of Saul as though it had not been anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan were lovely and pleasant in their lives, and in their death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Ye daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you in scarlet, with other delights, who put on ornaments of gold upon your apparel. How were the mighty fallen in the midst of the battle? O Jonathan, thou hast slain in the high places. I am distressed for thee, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant hast thou been unto me. Thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women. How are the mighty fallen? And the weapons of war perished. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the reading, the hearing, and the application of his word this morning. The people of the East unashamedly display their emotions. I'm sure you've seen this before. Often through songs and poems, they commemorate both joyful and painful experiences. And although we may not grieve and express our grief in like manner, like the people of the East, or for that matter, like each other. There are some of you this morning that when you are disappointed or you are grieved, it's like the floodgates open up. There are tears everywhere. And for others who genuinely grieve, they may say something like this, I am sad, like a robot. And genuinely, they're sad. They are grieved. But regardless of how we express it, the painful experiences of life are not foreign to us. We are all this morning acquainted with sadness, with grief, with disappointment, and sorrow. Anguish, distress, suffering, heartache, bereavement, and mourning. We've all been there. 
where we're there, where we're heading there. I love having our junior church with us in the morning. I love the fact that we can worship together with our children. And I, I always enjoy them being here. I try my best to make sure I'm aware that they're here and try to incorporate them into the service somehow. And I just wonder this morning if I could get feedback from our children today and just simply ask them this morning, what is it in your life that makes you sad? What is it that disappoints you? So if, if there, are there any of you who say, Pastor Rick, I, I can say without hesitation this morning, this makes me sad. Any of our young people? They're so sad they can't even speak this morning. What disappoints you? Where are all our, our talkative young people? They all go to toddlers? Anyone? Andy? <laughs> all right. Well, I, I think you're still here. We'll, we'll deal with that. Maybe for our young people, it's the kid who thought he was getting a soccer ball for his birthday. He saw the wrapping, and it was sort of circular with a square thinking it came in a box, only to find that it was a globe. Disappointing. Disappointing. Maybe you're here this morning, and for you, you're an individual who thought, at this stage of my life, I would have never been here. I thought I'd be further along than this. I didn't think I'd still be in Chatham. I can't believe where I'm at right now. Maybe for others, it's a broken relationship. We're waiting for the results from the test or the loss of a loved one. We've been there. We know that's the way it is. And yet there's something within us that we intrinsically, innately know it wasn't meant to be this way. This was not part of the original creation. Our original parents suffered what theologians call the fall. And the fall is what has introduced us to misery. But it was not the case. Adam and Eve were created in a perfect environment. Perfect. Can you imagine a perfect environment? 70, 68 degrees. Slight breeze, no humidity. Water nearby. Nothing to sting or bite or hurt. This was the original creation. And our original parents had the privilege and opportunity to walk with God in perfect fellowship. Can, can we even imagine walking with the creator of the universe with no secrets, no hiding, no shame? And we get the sense in Genesis chapter 1, 2, that in the cool of the night, God was with them walking and enjoying one another, enjoying. I, I just think that as God walked with Adam and Eve, that there was a great delight in showing them his creation. The creation's beautiful, isn't it? And when we get outside of, of the city and you look at the creation, it is magnificent. 
And I just had this sense that as God walked with Adam and Eve, he would say, look, look at this, enjoy this, I created this, I love this, I want you to love it as well. We understand this. If there's something that you love or enjoy, there's a sense of excitement and satisfaction when you share that with people you care for. We were, well, I was born and raised in Cleveland. Don't hold that against me. Okay. Kim grew up there. And one of the main attractions in, in the city of Cleveland is the West Side Market on 25th Street. It's an old market. It's 100 and something years old. It's still there. And when I was a kid, we would go there, and all the different ethnic groups were there. I mean, back then, you would see skinned goats and rabbits hanging. Beef was there. The smells and sights and sounds of the market, it was really cool. It was back in the day when they would cut off a piece of fruit, and you could taste it because it was all good. And so we had the chance last year to take our youngest back to Cleveland. Went to my old neighborhood, rolled the windows up, locked the doors, and, um, and went to the West Side Market. And, and for Kim and I, it was so exciting for us to say, man, enjoy this. Enjoy the pleasure of, of the West Side Market and the food and the, the ethnicity and all that's entailed. And it brought us great joy. You've done that. You have your favorite restaurant. You have people you care about, and you want to take them there and taste this. As they taste it and they like it, there's something within you that delights in that. Get your favorite piece of dark chocolate, sea salt. Mmm. And you share it. And you see your friend or your loved one enjoy it. There's something in you that thinks it's good. And here is God saying to his creation, look at this. This is good. And gaining joy from that fellowship? But not only do they have the creation... They had the creator. The psalmist said it right in Psalm 16:11 when he said, In thy presence is fullness of joy, and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. And this God, the, the fountain of all goodness and life, said, Not only are we fellowshipping about this creation, but I'm giving you myself the fount of all blessings. That was the original creation. And I think Augustine helps us understand this joy of just knowing God and fellowshipping with God and of him in our fallen state when he says, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. We sense that there is a restlessness because we were created to fellowship with this God and to enjoy him forever. But it was not good enough for Adam and Eve. They felt as if they were missing out on something. They felt as if something was being withheld from them. They got this thought that God was not really good. And the reason he tells you no is because he's a killjoy. And may I say that lie of deception is repeated every day since then in our lives, that we believe that God is not good, that he is withholding, that he doesn't want me to enjoy. And so what they believed would bring them freedom, brought bondage, pain, suffering, misery, disappointment, and death. And this is the world 
as it is today. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, David's experiencing grief and sadness and pain. And his pain here produces one of the most sensitive and moving expressions of mourning in all of Hebrew Scripture. This event starting in uh, verse number 17. And David is now expressing personal loss, personal grief, and national grief. And it's all centered, not all of it, but, but basically centered around Saul, the first king of Israel. What I want you to notice this morning as we sort of get into the text is this is not the first time someone is grieving for Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 15, at the end of the chapter, about verse number 35, I think is where it ends. And Samuel, the prophet, came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. Chapter 16. And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And here again we see someone grieving for Saul. And so this morning, this is not a symposium on grief and sorrow and dealing with disappointments. We have to be careful sometimes in Old Testament narratives. We try to pull things out of there that aren't there. When someone tells a story about David and Goliath and said, what's the giant in your life? The giant of fear and doubt and anxiety and finances. And you need these five stones to kill the giants of your life. Maybe it makes for great stories, but that's not what the text is about. Okay, The text is about one day God will send a king that will destroy the, the ultimate giant of death and rule and reign forever. It's a better ending, actually. And so that's not what we find here, but I do believe as we look at this text, we will see the biblical idea of grief, disappointment, and suffering, and know that we do not need to be devastated by it or paralyzed by it. In the example of Saul, his death, Samuel, and David. And so I want this morning just to share with you five things. There's five things from the text. As we deal with disappointment, we deal with grief, we deal with mourning, loss, and suffering. And this morning, if you're here and thinking, this doesn't apply to me, then thank God, brother. Rejoice, my sister, but it will. I wish I could tell you otherwise. I wish I could put a cheesy smile on my face and have an, an audience of 80,000 people and tell you everything's fine for the Christian. But it's not true. It's just not. We know this is true. And we see from God's word now in the life of David and Samuel, I think five lessons that will help us in the area of grief. Number one, I want you to see first off that the Lord, our Lord, grieves. The God of heaven, the king of the universe, grieves. In 1 Samuel 15, the text that we read, it said, And the Lord repented that he had made Saul king. 
And we get a little confused and say, wait a minute, how can the, the all-knowing God ever change his mind? Did God say, oh, oops, I blew this one. Should have seen that coming. I didn't know that Saul would blow it. That's not what's being said when, when the writer uses the word that, that God, the Lord, repented. It's not, oops, I made a mistake. The word literally means to sigh. <sighs> to sigh. And he is grieved over the outcome of Saul's choices that brought him to this place. It repented the Lord. He was grieved at the decisions that Saul made to bring him to this point in his life. And this is not new in the Old Testament. There's a verse I want you to see in Ezekiel chapter 33. It's verse 11. Because this is how our Lord works. He says, saying to them, as I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn you, turn you from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And this is the heartbeat of God. We see it throughout the Old Testament, and then we get to the New Testament, when God then breathes our air and walks our sod and wraps himself in humanity in the person of Jesus Christ. Over and over again, we see this God mourning and grieving for us and our condition. Anybody know the shortest verse in all of the Bible? Yeah, John eleven thirty five. Very good. You know what that's about? Lazarus' death. His burial. Mary and Martha weeping. And here is Christ there. And he weeps. And for whatever the situation, whether their unbelief or their sorrow or their grief or death or whatever, he weeps. Matthew 23, Luke 19, we find him weeping over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chickens, but you would not. Over and over again, we see this Lord of ours grieving for the hardness of the people of God. And there's a real danger when we suffer and when we are grieved that we have this idea that God, you don't care. God, you don't know. You don't understand. The hymn writer, I think, expresses it well when he says, Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long? Does Jesus care when the way is dark with the nameless dread and fear as the daylight fades into deep night shades, does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist temptation strong? When for my deep gr grief I find no relief, though my tears flow all the night long? Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it aught to him does he see? And I love how he responds in the chorus. Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with our grief. And this is the God of heaven. And the writer of that hymn picks up Hebrews chapter 4 that says, We have a high priest who is touched 
with this feeling of our infirmity. Not just your infirmity, not just the suffering that you're in, but how you feel and process and go through that grief and disappointment and sorrow and hurt. He cares, and he knows, not as God who knows everything, but experimentally, he walked among us. Flesh. And he knows. I want you to know this morning that our Lord grieves. It should bring us comfort. The God of heaven grieves for you. He grieves for me. Number two, I want you to know that we should grieve. We should grieve. There ought to be things in your life and my life that are devastating, that we literally grieve over. Grief is appropriate. It is an appropriate response to sorrow, pain, and suffering. And again, I don't care how you do it, but there ought to be some grieving over situations in our life. Let me just give you two examples from our text that I think is important to us that we need to remember. The first is this, that Saul or Samuel and David grieved over the condition of the people of God. Samuel was grieving over Saul. David was grieving over Saul and Jonathan and the people of the Lord. And it is appropriate for us this morning to grieve over God's people. Now let me help you with something. Say, that's Old Testament, that's the Israelite. Can I tell you something? This morning, if you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, to as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, you, through the blood of Christ, through faith and repentance, you are now a child of God. You belong to God's family. Therefore, you and I who know him are God's people. Only two families on this planet. God's family, those redeemed by Christ, and Satan's, those who are lost and left in their fallen state. And so, this morning, we are God's people. And so the question is, as David and Samuel grieved over the condition of God's people, do you and I ever grieve over the condition of God's people? We could spend most of the morning today talking about grieving nationally, at our nation, what we see happening around us, culture of death, a culture that attacks the most innocent among us, that parts out body parts of a baby for gain, that sh- maybe that should make us grieve, just guessing. Maybe the moral sewage that we find ourselves in, the confusion of our land, the total disregard for God's creative order and God's roles. We should grieve. And I'm fearful that what most of us do is we go back home and watch TV for another half an hour. Get another sitcom in. Laugh it off. Get busy in your own life. Play videos for another 12 hours and pretend as everything is hunky-dory in our world today. And it's not. It's not. God's people should be grieved over our nation. You say, Pastor, that's not me. I don't do. I, I'm, I'm against. Da, 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 da. I get it. But do you know when Daniel prayed about the condition of Israel, he included himself in their sins? You should be grieved. 
should be grieved over the condition of God's people. We should be grieved over our nation. We should be grieved over ourselves. Christian, when's the last time you were sick of yourself? Oh, man, I got the Sunday when it's going to be beating on me the whole time. Yeah, sorry. You're sick of your complacency, your laziness, your lethargy, your, your, you know, your lack of spiritual growth? Do we grieve over the people of God? Do we grieve over their physical situation? You know, I, I know you know this, but, but today, as we're here, somewhere in this world of ours, there are brothers and sisters in Christ who believe this book. They believe it. And they love it. And they live by it. And just because of that, they will be forced from their homes. They will be hunted down. They will be imprisoned. They will be tortured. They will be killed because they love Jesus Christ. Our brothers and sisters today, while we sit here, are dying for the cause of Christ. And how's your... Farmville doing? Cows doing okay? Growing more pineapples? Doing real well on that, right? Do we care about, what about here, just here? Do you, do you grieve over the condition of the physical condition of people in our place? When you hear again cancer, when you hear again loss, when you see brokenness among God's people, is there any sense that it grieves us? Grieves us. It should. It should. And here are David and Saul, Samuel, and they're, they're grieved over the condition of God's people. But that's not all. They're grieved for the name of God. It's interesting what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 2, verse 20, in this lament. He says, don't tell it in Gath. Don't publish this in Ascalon. Don't let the Philistines see that God suffered defeat, that his people suffered loss, because they might rejoice and besmirch his name. Can I tell you something this morning? We ought to be grieved when it comes, or concerned at least, and grieved when it comes to God's name. Do you know, if you're here this morning, and you are a Christian, Christian, it means you are a follower of Christ, and his name is upon you, you. And so, as we live, our lives are to tell the truth about the Christ we serve. And when our lives do not tell the truth about the Christ we serve, his name is affected. Our job as believers is not just to be, after we're saved, be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Our job is to make his name famous. To bring glory to him. And our lives are to tell the truth. So when people see our lives, do they know the truth that God is loving? God is kind. God is merciful. God is just. God is the God of truth integrity. God has a God of forgiveness, of holiness, of purity. David was grieved about the fact that God's name was besmirched. 
And we, as his people, should be as well. I mean, how many conversations have we heard or had where people say things like this? I know Christians. And then out it comes. They're unkind, they're evil, they're wicked, they gossip, blah, da, da, and it goes, and, and, and the truth is, that, yeah, yeah, I do too. Sometimes I'm like that. But should we not guard the glory and the holiness of God's name? Here David is grieving. He's grieving for the people of God. He's grieving also for the name of God. Number three, what we grieve over reveals our hearts. You think with me this morning, what makes you upset? What makes you weep? What makes you cry? And unfortunately, for some of you, it's like, oh, that cheesy show that you just watched, that always makes me cry, all right? I hate, I hate shows and music that purposely want to make you cry. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, there was a song when I was a kid, um, Goodbye, My Friend, It's Hard to Die. Remember that song? How many people remember that song? Wasn't that terrible? Goodbye, my friend, it's hard to die when all the birds are singing in the sky. You know, we had joy, we had fun, we had seasons in the sun. Right, everybody now, we had joy. No, okay. It, and it, it was so, I mean, they played the song so you'd cry. I hate people toying with my emotions like that. Goodbye, Michelle, it's hard to die, whatever the song was. Okay. Um, but what grieves us reveals what's important in our hearts. What gets me bent out of shape, which fires me up, which makes me cry and weep, reveals to everyone around me what's important here, what my heart is attached to. Now listen to me. Some of you folks, you get all bent out of shape that your kid didn't brush his teeth before he went to school. And you should. Children, brush your teeth. Fresh breath is always appropriate but you don't care about their bad attitude. You let that slide. And you read them the riot act because they didn't brush their teeth, but you never address the bad attitude when you ask them to do anything. That's a problem. Some of us are more bent out of shape, and we cry over a ding in a door of our vehicle than our dirty hearts. I'm all for taking care of your stuff. You ought to take care of your stuff. You take care of this stuff and this building and this property. It's got to take care of it. Ownership, stewardship. But when we're crying over doors that are dung and have a bang in them or whatever it is, bang, buck, whatever, and we don't care about our dirty hearts, something is revealed in our life that's just not right. And we're more disappointed that the Indians lost again. Your day's coming. It's coming, you maple, you maple Leaf fans. We're more upset about our team that's losing instead of our incessant struggle with our sin. Something's wrong. I'm telling you something. What grieves you this morning is a good indicator of what's really important in your heart and life. Number four, our grief is not meant to cripple us to move us to action. We have a standing joke in our family. Kim and I will often go out and we'll get um, one of those McDonald's, it's a cold drink, frappe, what is it? 
it's something. It's cold. It's frappe. You know, you drink it. It's really cold. And I will take a big gulp of the thing. I mean, a big gulp. And when I do, I always get this brain freeze, right? How many are there? You think we learn by now in your 40s, like, don't do that? And I do it, and it happens again and again. And then I say to Kim, oh, I have had the most excruciating pain in the world. No one could ever understand this brain freeze. Okay? It's so bad. And the standing joke is, no one has ever experienced this excruciating brain freeze like I have. Now, that is not true. But I want her to believe it's true. Until I get sympathy. And then I take another drink and it happens again and again and again. Some of us, you know, we go through this grief and we go through suffering. And the fact is, as we do, we have this idea that this grief and this problem and this trouble that I have, no one in the world has ever suffered like I've suffered. And so it cripples us. No one has experienced the pain that I've experienced. And we're paralyzed by that. There are times that we feel like no one understands. Or now, because this happened in my life, I will never be happy again. We cut ourselves off from the world, and all our thoughts turn inward. But I'm telling you something, that is not what grief is supposed to do. It should motivate us to move. In our text, God says to Samuel, Samuel, how long are you going to keep on crying? And I don't know how long he was crying, but, but he was crying for a while. So Samuel, quit it. Get up. Go anoint David. I've got a king in Bethlehem. My purposes will not be foiled. You, you see this over again. You remember Elijah? Elijah was crying. He was the only guy left. God, take my life. I, I didn't want to live anymore. And God comes to him in a still small voice and says, Elijah, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And then he starts again, oh, God, there's nobody left. It's just me. And God never says, oh, sorry about that. You're so right. This is the worst thing that could ever happen. You know what he says to Elijah? Get up. I've got something for you to do. Go do it. And in David's life, Samuel gets up and he goes anoints the king. David then expresses his grief. He writes, he teaches, that book of Jasser there, literally means the scroll of the righteous, the heroic exploits of the Israelites. He later reaches out to Jabesh Gilead and then becomes king and conquers the Philistines. Grief is not meant to paralyze you or to cripple you. And I'm not telling you this morning how long it should be or how long it should last. I don't know, but I do know this. The ultimate purpose is to get you to move. To move. In the summer of 1981, a six-year-old boy was abducted from a department store. Sixteen later, they found his severed head in a drain ditch 120 miles away. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't even fathom the grief and the sorrow and the suffering of that family. And if it were me, you talk about putting yourself in a hole and being done with everything I think, just humanly speaking, that's where I would be. The family didn't do that, though. They started a children's resource center. And they, they changed lots of laws about abduction and, and pedophiles. And, and, and it was a great thing. And in 1988, the father of Adam Walsh, John Walsh, 
started America's Most Wanted. And is responsible for the capture of over a thousand fugitives. Right? So listen to me. I know nothing about the Walshes, their spiritual life. But if they could take that grief and tragedy, how much more the children of light? I'm not trying to minimize your grief this morning. I'm not, I'm not trying to minimize your sorrow. I, I don't know what grieves you. I don't know what. We all have our own burdens. We share burdens. But, but what I'm telling you is this. How much more the children of light who inevitably know that all sorrow and all grief will be swallowed up in victory. Shouldn't that move us into God? Shouldn't that move us into his presence? Shouldn't we say, God, I'm, I'm grieving, I am hurt, I am struggling, but Lord, help me through this. And then finally this morning, number five, there is grace for you. There's grace for you. Um, Christian, we're never alone. Can, can I tell you something? We ought to care for one another. I'm, I'm pleased at this church, and I think we, we do a good job at this. But I want you to know this. Ultimately, there's not anyone in this church that can heal your heart. Oh, we can bring you soup. We can let you cry on our shoulders. We can watch the kids. We can rally around, and we should, and we will. But ultimately, only the God of heaven can comfort your heart. And he is the God of all comfort. There is a purpose for grief. And I don't know all the purposes, but I do know this. One is to remind us that this life isn't all that there is. We get too comfortable down here. We want to live forever. And that grief should drive us to God. Now listen, here's the great truth. That this God of heaven, because one suffered for us, we now have access to this God of grace. And because what Jesus Christ did, listen, he was innocent. He never, he never sinned. He never did anything wrong. And yet he suffered for our redemption, and he suffered that you and I could have eternal life through the blood of Christ, through his sacrifice, for the appeasement from the, the wrath of God, all of those things. But he suffered not so that we won't suffer, but so that when we suffer, he suffers with us. Because of the sacrifice of Christ this morning, there is grace for us. I quoted earlier Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, about a high priest um, who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. But I want you to see the, 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 the next verse as, as the writer of Hebrews closes chapter 4. He says this, Because of what Christ has done, because we were sinners condemned to a Christless hell, God interceded, gave us his Son, the wrath was poured upon him. He died, was buried, and rose again. And now we can be justified by his grace and grace alone. Because of that, we now have a high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And he says, let us therefore come boldly onto the throne of grace. Now listen to me. I don't know what adjectives you would use to describe a throne. I might, I might try mighty, spectacular, glorious, um, supercalifragilistic, whatever, but, but that's how I would describe a throne. That's not how this throne is described. It's a throne of 
grace. It's grace. This throne that God sits upon is a throne of grace. Grace, grace, marvelous grace that flows to God's people for your hurt, for my hurt, for our sorrow, for our grief. And then he says that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. And so this morning, my beloved sister, my beloved brother, this is the world as it is today. It can be a nasty place. We experience tremendous disappointment, grief, and loss. But I want you to know, the God of heaven knows. He grieves with us. And as we grieve, our hearts are revealed on what's important to us, which should, for many of us, open our eyes and ask God to change what we're attached to in this world. That we ought to grieve for the condition of God's people, for his name. That we, as God's people, can find help and grace at his throne. And so... My prayer for you, my prayer for me, is that we as God's people would not allow this grief to paralyze us or to devastate us, but it would move us to the throne of grace that we can find help in our time of need. Let's pray this morning.